Let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, shall we? Uh, We began this new set of studies in the book of Colossians last week. We're going to read from verse 9. Colossians chapter 1, reading from verse 9. Having just thanked God for the Colossians, Paul says in verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, We have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. This is God's word. Well, the Colossian church was a great encouragement to the Apostle Paul. In verses 3 to 8, Paul had told the Colossians why they were such an encouragement to him. Um, Epaphras had taken the gospel to them, shared it with them. They heard and understood and accepted this, the grace of God in all truth. And they had, their lives had changed They had shown these initial um, qualifying marks, indicators of true Christianity, faith, hope, love. You see that in verses 3 and 4. And to Paul, these guys were yet another reminder of the fact that this gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection is bearing fruit throughout the whole world, everywhere, including here in Colossae. But of all of those, all those encouragements, really, according to the Apostle Paul, are just the beginning. These guys have believed the gospel, but will they be able to grow in their understanding of the gospel? That's the question. Will they be able to grow in their understanding of the gospel and change the change that the gospel is supposed to bring to the ins and outs, the nooks and crannies, the big things and the wee things of our everyday lives? That's Paul's concern. And before we launch into this, I wonder if it's our concern. If you're here today and you're a Christian, then the things that Paul has said of the Colossians in the first few verses can be said of you. You've received God's grace in all its truth. You have borne the initial marks of faith, hope, and love. But the question is, are we growing in the gospel? Do you feel that you are? Can you see evidence of that in your life? Now, some people are confused by the question of how do the benefits of Christ really apply in the everydayness of our Christian lives? But it's not uncommon for people to really treat the gospel like it's some kind of entry gate into the Christian life. And that's all. 
without really understanding how central it is to our everyday decisions, choices, how we face temptation, etc. Well, what I want us to see in this is that, even from Paul's prayer today, is that the gospel isn't simply the ABC of the Christian life. Not just the entry point, it's the A to Z. Knowing and believing the gospel doesn't just ignite the Christian life, it's the fuel that keeps the Christian going and growing in Christ's likeness every day. And knowing God is vital to that. That's why Paul has thanked these guys, thanked God for these guys. Uh, and that's why he's praying that God would help them grow in their understanding. So let's have a look at it. If you're taking notes today, I'm going to give you three points. Uh, ver- uh, first of all, pray to him from verse 9. Second of all, uh, live for him, verses 10 to 12. And thirdly, remember him, uh, the second part of 12 to 14. So first of all, pray to him. Ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. This is what Paul does for the Colossians. Verse 9 says, Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Now, if you're going to ask God to, uh, to fill you with the knowledge of his will, the first thing that you need to answer is the question, well, what is God's will? It's quite common to hear Christians talk about God's will, mostly around the, the kind of times when there's a big decision to make. People ask, What's God's will for my life whenever there's a choice to be made about something like, well, what, what, what course should I do at university uh, in relation to relationships? Uh, who should I marry? Career? Should I leave this job and look for another one? Lifestyle? How should I live? How should I spend my time? Uh, retirement? How should I spend my time? What should I do? Uh, church, which church should I join? It's in these times with these things that people generally mark as big decisions that we ask the question, Lord, what is your will for my life? Now, I think that's quite revealing. Because when we talk about the will of God in that way, I think it shows that we think that God's will is something very personal, very mysterious, And something that's very future focused. And the result of believing that kind of thing is that we can end up treating God like some kind of fairground fortune teller. He is the special knowledge that we really want and we need to get it from him. And you have to admit, when it comes to getting that information, Christians, well, Christians can employ some really strange methods of decision making. Of seeking out that God's will. So we lay out fleeces, where most of the time, we're really just delaying a decision, or worse, testing God, which isn't good. Or we go with gut feelings, which is strange in a sense, like serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline in the lining of our intestine contains wisdom. I mean, you get that same feeling on a roller coaster. But worse, we go with the random Bible verse method. Uh, just, to, just out for fun, I did it this morning. And uh, I flicked through the Bible, I stopped, and I did the random finger method. And what did I land on? Matthew 19, verse 8. Moses permitted you to divorce your wife. <laughs> I don't think so. 
But is that a right understanding of God's will? And do these methods work? Should we employ methods like this? Well, I'm sure that those of us who've thought about God's will in this way or have employed some of those methods in decision-making before have actually found that these things are pretty fruitless. And actually what it does is is it just turns these times of decision-making into times that are just full of anxiety. And actually we're still left wondering, I'm thinking, I have no clue what to do. The answers are hard to find. And this is why I think it's the case. I think it's because we misunderstood what the Bible teaches about the will of God. The Bible talks about God's will in two particular ways. The first way the Bible talks about God's will is how it relates to God's plans. Here's an example from Ephesians 1. God made known to us the mystery of his will. Okay, now what's this will? According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. What is that will? To bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. There's the big plan. There's God's will. In Christ, we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plans. Now we're talking about will. Of him who works out everything. Everything. Underline it. Emphasize it. In the big things and the small things. God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So from the way Paul uses will in Ephesians 1, it's obvious he's talking about God's salvation plan. His great big purposes of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, everything that's taken place to bring about all that will glorify his name. And did you notice what Paul said about those plans? He said these plans have been made known. They've been communicated. God has made known to us the mystery of his will. So it's not some secret hidden thing. It's been revealed. Not through writing in the sky or dreams or noradrenaline, but through, through his words. Now, why has God made this aspect of his will known, do you think? His grand plan. To glorify his name through Christ. It's not to help us wonder about the future. He's told us all we need to know about the future. He's got under control. No, it's to help us live in the present. It's to help us look at God's plans and goals and examine our own plans and goals and to see if they're aligned or if they're completely out of sync. And he wants us to align everything we do and want with his will. So God's will, first of all, refers to his plans, the things that can be known in relation to his grand plan. Now let me show you the second way the Bible talks about God's will. It talks about God's will as it relates to his commands, his specific instructions, how things should be done. Here's an example from 1 John, chapter 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So from the way John uses the will of God in this passage, it's clear he's not talking about God's grand salvation plan. It's it's more detailed than that. He's talking about how he wants all believers to live. And in this verse, God's will in 1 John 2 is that we love him, the Lord, and not the world. So God's will, again, is not something personal, mysterious, and future-focused. It's universal. It's revealed. And it's given to us so that we might take that knowledge 
from here and put it in here and then take that knowledge and apply it in wisdom so that we can walk it out in our lives. Now, how does the Bible's explanation of the will of God then, in those two ways, help us understand what Paul is asking God to do for the Colossians when he prays? Fill them with a knowledge of your will. He's not asked God to fill their minds with a special knowledge about the future, but a deeper knowledge about God that helps them live for him in the present. He's not asking God to help them make a decision on what career to pursue or the detail of exactly where they should live. He's asking God to fill them with a knowledge of their will so that they can, with his will, so that they can put their minds fully loaded with this knowledge of God's plans and commands to work in discerning what will best bring God glory in a million everyday decisions. Let me give you a visual illustration of this. It might help us if you like. Imagine the Christian life is like a road. And on each side of the road you have two barriers, like some motorway, a four or five lane motorway. And on the left we have this this sign, this decree which says, glorify God. That's where we take into account his grand plans to glorify himself in everything. And then on the right hand barrier, the other fence if you like, is God's standards. And the sign is, obey God. And when faced with any choice, then big or small, it's helpful to ask, well, what should I do? But should, what should I do? By doing this one thing, am I aligned with God's plan to bring glory to his name? Or am I sinfully looking to transgress that barrier and seek to glorify myself in some way? Well, don't do that. That's sin. Same with his strict commands, his instructions, what he's revealed to us about the way that we should live. You can ask, does the decision that I have to make or the choice that I have to make, am I, in my thoughts, my words, my deeds, or my plans, transgressing this barrier here by being disobedient, strictly disobedient? And if not, if the answer is no, I'm, I'm, living for, I'm trying to make a decision based on God's glory. I'm not trying to glorify myself. And I'm trying to honor and obey his standards with God's help. I'm not sinfully pursuing my own desires or anything like that. Then on that road, whatever you want to do, do it to the glory of God. And don't freak out about the decision to make. The path of the Christian life and staying on God's will is no tightrope. It's a five-lane autobahn. Do not transcend these barriers. Walk in God's will according to his plans, according to his commands, and do whatever it is to the glory of God. Be free. Now the question is, how do we grow in the knowledge of God's will? It's, okay, I hope we've clarified what God's will is. Spend a lot of time on it. Uh, but how do we grow in the knowledge of God's will? Well, the fact that Paul asked God to fill These Colossian believers tells us that there's more to know, there's growing to do. I suppose you could imagine something like your brain as a petrol tank. You know, no one would ever claim to have a full tank of knowledge. That means there's more to know, there's deeper truths to explore. But according to God, the fact that Paul prays this prayer tells us it's actually really important to be filled with this knowledge. And the text tells us how that Knowledge tank, if you like, is filled. God fills it. God fills us with knowledge. 
The knowledge that we have is not humanly attainable. It's God-given, as Paul says there in the verse. It comes through, verse 9, spiritual wisdom and understanding. And even the fact that God asked Paul to fill them shows that this knowledge comes from God. God fills our knowledge tanks. And the great news is, God is really, really pleased to fill us up with a knowledge of his will. He's a gracious father who loves it when his children come and ask him for things that are completely in keeping with his will, with his purposes. And so we should join Paul then in asking God to fill us. Fill us with that knowledge. With expectancy that he as a gracious God will do that for us. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can find myself, my prayers just become so shaped by requests that are not like this. They're shaped by lists and other things. Not, not things that are unimportant, but, but sometimes, as I, even as I had a quick flick this week through the prayers of Paul in the New Testament, I think, wow, sometimes my prayers just seem quite out of sync with what he prays for. You know, in Philippians, pray that you would grow, abound more and more in love so that you may grow in depth of, oh, I'm trying to quote it from memory. You would grow and abound more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. You know, Paul's prayers are, are typified by the kind of request that he makes here in Colossians. And I wonder if we need to align ourselves and pray and ask God for more New Testament-shaped prayers, if you like, to seek God's wisdom and knowledge in a fuller sense. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that even though God is the one who fills us, that he just does that automatically. I mean, that doesn't happen with your car. You know, it doesn't, if you're running on empty, it doesn't automatically fill up with petrol overnight. Although that would be quite convenient. He's, God has given us the means to know him better and explained that when we use those means, he, by his spirit, gives us understanding. So we read from Proverbs 2 earlier on. It illustrates this perfectly. We have a father who loves to pass on knowledge and wisdom to his son. And as Matt encouraged us to do, as you listen out for the active verbs of what's going on there, you see, this is not some kind of passive absorption. You know, you're not just absorbing God's will. There's an active part in it. You accept, you store up, you turn your ear, apply your heart, you call out, you cry aloud, you look for it as for silver, you search for it as for treasure. Then, here's the result, you'll understand the fear of the Lord, find the knowledge of God for, here's the reason, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. All of those things. So, what can we do? How do we... God fills us with knowledge. How do we get that knowledge? We pray and ask him for it, knowing he's gracious to give it to us. And we use the means that he's already given for us to acquire this knowledge. He's not left us in the dark. So, automatically, we go to things like reading our Bibles. Reading our Bibles. Now, I speak to so many people who find this hard. Life is busy. Sometimes people are lazy and indisciplined. I'm, I included myself. But we will be running on empty in no time if we don't tackle even one verse a day. I mean, if you're drifting off into ungodliness in all sorts of ways, it's, it's no surprise if you're not reading your Bible because this is one of the ways that God fills us with the knowledge of his will which then helps us live in a way that pleases him. That's what we're going to get to. It's no surprise. He's made it plain. You have that knowledge. Or we should listen to God's word preached. Well done for coming out today. Thank you. Listening to sermons, though, with care and attentiveness. You don't need to be a note taker to listen with care. You just need to be able to pay attention. Listen often. 
Not just in Sundays. You can, there are plenty of podcasts available. Sermons that you can read or listen to throughout the week. Seize your commute as you're traveling into work. Fill your mind with knowledge. Read some solid books that teach you something about God's character. Things that really fuel your heart. I mean, lots of people get, get up in the morning. I think it's one of my temptations. And the first thing that you want to do is check your phone. Cursed phones. Why can we not go back to a Nokia 3210? It had a small screen. It was green. You didn't want to read it. Even when you got a text. <laughs> but we get up in the morning. The first thing we do is we spend 10 minutes flicking through BBC or scanning people's walls on Facebook. Oh, I don't have any time to read anything good. We do. We actually do. We're just indisciplined in how we spend our time. Yeah, I'm convicted by that. That's feel free to do that. If you're finding time at other times, of course, to read through solid books or read one verse and pray for one minute, even if you're doing that, that's great. But if you're not, the issue is not that you have no time. The issue is that we're maybe lazy and we're indifferent to this. We think we can coast. I think I can coast. It's foolishness. And the other thing we can do to acquire knowledge, of course, is to talk with other Christians about the things that we struggle to understand so that they can help us figure it out. Now, if we don't do these things, we will run on empty. It might be because we're just not asking God to fill us. It's maybe because we're not doing these things. And if you struggle to do these things on your own, get someone to help. If you're totally indisciplined on your own, there's plenty of people. Pray with each other. Read with each other. The truth is we can't really go on for a few more miles without filling up. And filling up to us sometimes seems like a hassle. Doesn't it feel like going to the petrol station is a chore? Oh, I just want to go home and have my dinner. I don't want to stop here. It's so expensive. Well, doing these things as a matter of priority is actually what we really need to do. Make it, and here's the practical thing for you. If you don't take any application away from any of this today, there's one thing. Make this prayer your prayer for the whole of this week, for the whole of forever. Okay? Father, fill me with the knowledge of your will. Start there. That's the one concrete thing you can do. Underline it in your Bibles, highlight it on your device, whatever it is. Fill us with the knowledge of your will. So the first thing Paul wants us to do, that's the bigger point this morning. Pray to him. Ask God to so fill you with the knowledge of his will that you begin to live for him. This is what this is all about. This is what Paul goes on to speak about. Growing in the knowledge of God, according to the Apostle Paul, is what leads to changed lives. Praying for change. That's what we're doing. And Paul's hope is that praying this prayer is not going to puff people up with head knowledge, but transform lives. He's not wanting to produce PhD programs full of clever clogs, but local churches full of changed people living lives that make God smile. That's what he wants. Look with me at verse 10. As we live for him, we pray this in order that, so here's a purpose statement, that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So Paul brings this direct correlation between the knowledge of God's will and the life that pleases God. And that tells us that knowledge leads to change. Now think back to the time when you first became a Christian. The knowledge of God changed you. It changed what you held to be true and started to change how you lived. 
Now, before we heard the gospel and believed in Jesus, we lived according to our own will. We did as we pleased. We made decisions based on what would bring us most pleasure. But the knowledge of Christ changed all that. It changed, the, knowing Christ led to a change in what we believed to be true. So we discovered that God exists. A change in how we viewed ourselves. We didn't see ourselves as being okay. We saw ourselves as sinners. It brought about a change in direction. We realized that we can no longer live in the way that we have been living. We need to repent, turn away from that, and live a new life. And it brought about a change in where we placed our hope. We didn't trust in ourselves for getting ourselves through life. We trusted in Christ. And it brought about a change in life. We died to our own wants, plans, purposes. We live to please him. And in the same way, as we are filled with this knowledge of God throughout the Christian life, as we apply the gospel in everyday life, we begin to love and treasure him and put that knowledge into practice. We're enabled and equipped to live in ways that please God. Isn't that a great thought? Living in a way that pleases him. Now, what does a life that pleases him look like? Well, Paul tells us. In verses 10 to 12. The life that pleases God is one where we are, when we're filled with the knowledge of God, uh, grow in good works. We bear fruit in good work. Because the Bible teaches that good works are an indicator of true repentance and a healthy faith. In Romans it talks about how we build each other up by outdoing one another in doing good. Uh, Good works are used by God to help unbelievers take notice of him too. And it's a good thing to see that that we can ask God to fill us with the knowledge of his will so that we can live a life where we gladly look for opportunities not to serve ourselves but serve others. Are we growing in good works? Do we see selfishness typifies our life more than humility and goodness, kindness, kindness? It's telling. Maybe when we're filled with the knowledge of God, we also grow in knowledge. I think we've covered that quite a lot already. The basic gist of it is that when you pray to God and seek this knowledge, the thing that you want more of is knowledge. You want to grow more. Someone has said that the gospel is, is, is like some water, that it's shallow enough for a baby to paddle in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. And I think that's true. You can know enough to be saved by knowing the simple truths of the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day he rose again in accordance to the scriptures and banking your everything on that. Seeking forgiveness of sin in his name. And yet we can go deeper into that, different facets of the character of God, his holiness. Wow, how that changes our understanding of who we are and what we should do. His grace, wow. What he's done for the For the people way back in the Exodus when he delivered them from Egypt and rescued, they crossed over from death to life. Wow, that's like what Jesus has done for us to help us cross over from death to all these different things as we go deeper in that knowledge helps us grow in our understanding and our love for God. The third thing is when we are filled with the knowledge of God, we grow in strength. Strength. Verse 11 tells us, filled with the knowledge of God, God gives us power. But for what purpose? It's quite striking the way it's described. It's all power. It's God's mighty and glorious power to do what? What is this all power for? Is it to raise the dead? You know, to see millions saved? That's to endure and to keep going with patience. 
And here's an admission, isn't it? It's life in this world is hard. Uh, even people who found Christ struggle with suffering and sin. God's not promised to take all of that away just yet. He will in the future, but not just yet. But the Christian is called to endure in hope and persevere, even in hard times. And we do that when we realize that we go deeper in the knowledge of God that tells us that he is with us in our trials, that he supplies the power to help us endure in our trials, that he is working good even through our trials and even gives us purpose and ministry in our trials by helping us help others. Now maybe we find ourselves muttering with complaint that God isn't doing our will by taking away our hardships. Well, we can pray to ask God to fill us with the knowledge of his will so that we can live a life of endurance in circumstances and patience in hard times and with people. And lastly, when we, when we are filled with the knowledge of God, we grow in joy and thanksgiving. How does the knowledge of God change how we live in this? Well, the Bible teaches that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father in heaven. That knowledge of that means that we don't take anything for granted. But we become people who give thanks in all circumstances. Actually, God tells us elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians that we should give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. There's your will of command again. That God has done these incredible things for us. It's reason to give thanks. So are you full of thanksgiving? Do you see this as a fruit in your life? Are you living in a way that pleases him by, not by complaining, but by praising God for the goodness that you've received? Maybe you need to ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will so that you can live a life where you see evidences of grace all around. To make you less a complainer and more a thankful person. This is the life that pleases God. Now before I move on to the third point, I just want to help you understand that this works not only in the virtues that we're to put on, but as Paul will address later in chapter 3, the vices that we're to put off. When God fills you with the knowledge of his will and helps you apply that knowledge of the gospel and who he is and who you are in a way that produces this good fruit, that same knowledge that we get from God's words as he fills us with it, helps us know how to fight the fight that pleases him. In other words, how we tackle temptation and how we tackle sin. Sin that besets us or sin that surprises us. Let's take just one example. Maybe you are struggling with pornography or sexual impurity. Well, you find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul writing, it is God's will that you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying that people who don't know God don't avoid the things that God condemns. Okay? A direct link between knowledge and behavior. They don't know God. They don't avoid the things that God will punish. But we, on the other hand, know God's will, because we just read it, is to purify a people for himself and specifically so that we know that he's instructed us to avoid sexual immorality like pornography, sex outside of marriage, those kind of things. Now what is, Paul, what is he saying to us in this? He's saying that going deeper in your knowledge of God, if you're in a struggle with pornography or sexual immorality of some sort, 
going deeper in your knowledge of God is actually the first step on the path to sexual purity. If we're struggling with sexual impurity, we ask God to fill us with the knowledge of his will in order that we may live the life that pleases him. There's a direct link between that knowledge and that behavior. You can apply that in any area of temptation. Anger. Irritability. Whatever. Anything. Gossip. The idea here is that we fill our minds with the knowledge of God that is so real, so precious... So unbelievably satisfying to our souls that any thought or any attitude or any emotion or any temptation which threatens to hinder this will be resisted by God's grace. And now, as we're encouraged in this prayer to ask God to fill us with the knowledge of his will and apply the gospel so that we live a life that pleases God and fight the fight that pleases God. I wonder how you feel. Because even as I've walked through some of these things today, we're, we're naturally kind of aligning ourselves with this or measuring ourselves up against it and thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not doing too well in this. It's often our experience that we feel crushed or disappointed because we feel like we're not pleasing God. It's easier just to identify the, days that, the ways that we're deficient or the days that we're deficient. That would apply. But Paul doesn't allow us to think like that. No, as he goes on here, he floods us with reassurances about where our confidence and our motivation lies in asking God and praying to him to fill us and in helping us live out this life. It's in Jesus Christ and all that he has won for us. And this is the third thing. Remember him. The knowledge of the gospel is what gets us through. It's what motivates us. Look with me at verse 12, the second part of it. We joyfully give thanks to this Father who has, here's what the Father has done for us, qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. God has done two things for us as Paul closes here. We're qualified and we are redeemed. Qualified. He has already qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. So even if you're deficient in some aspect of your Christian life, in fact, we are, you are, I am, we all are, let's face it. Okay, we're all honest about that confession, good. Okay, we, we, we are all deficient in lots of different ways, but surely no one should have the idea or the notion that with all of our faith, sin displeases God, okay, don't let me, I'm not going to erase that, I'm not going to try and cover that up or kind of make it look pretty or something, it's a fact, God hates sin. But God has made a way for that sin to be done away with every time one who trusts him confesses Christ and applies the gospel. Because he has qualified us so that we recognize these good things that we do are not the means by which we find favor with God. We do them because we already have favor with God. It's not, I obey him, therefore God accepts me. It's, I'm accepted, therefore I obey him. Big difference. Huge, colossal, east to west difference. And he's qualified us to share in this inheritance of the saints, which is another way of talking about eternal life in heaven with him. Now that is incredible, that you're qualified in that regard through faith in Christ, because... We are by nature and by choice totally disqualified. 
If you're here today, you're not a Christian. This is true. The Bible doesn't hide this from us at all. It says that God is God, Lord over all. He made us, therefore we're, we're not autonomous, we're accountable to him. We have to give an account to him of how we live our lives. And actually, if we don't believe in him, if we live as if he doesn't exist, and we're the center of it all, he counts us as sinners. And those who die as sinners without having, without having trusted in Jesus, his son, will be punished. They will not inherit the inheritance of the saints, as it's mentioned in this text. Uh, Jesus talks often about the reality of hell, and that's the inheritance of those who die without believing in God. And yet he has made a way for us to come to know him through Jesus Christ. Though we were totally disqualified, God's son came into this world to live the life that you and I could never live and died in our place on the cross, paying the price for our sins. And on that cross, this great exchange took place where the sin that we had committed in our lives was transferred to his account, if you like. And as he died and breathed his breath and shed, last breath and shed his blood, that sin was done away with. And when we put our trust and faith and trust in him, this sinless saviour who died in our place, the amazing exchange is that his sinless life, the perfect life, is taken and transferred to our account. He didn't earn it. He gives you it as a gift by faith. That's how we are qualified to share in the inheritance of saints, through faith. We receive it as a gift of grace. For he paid the price for our sins. And it's only because of what he's done that anyone is qualified to share in this inheritance. It's only because we work from that as the foundation of our Christian faith that we can do any of these things. Pray, live a life that pleases him. Only when it's built on the gospel of free grace. You're already qualified. You're not trying to qualify. You're already in. It's all because of that day of sacrifice. This is a day of sacrifice and remembrance, of course. You know, the death of service men and women, as we remember them, we, we, we stand at memorials, we reflect as we did earlier in our service, and it's just so sad and solemn, and rightly so. It is sad and solemn. But as we remember his sacrifice... There's joy when you fully grasp what it wins for you. You are no longer destined for hell. Because of his goodness, he has destined you for the inheritance of the saints. He's qualified you. It's incredible. Not only has he qualified you, he has redeemed you. This is all in the past tense. Look at what Paul says. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's already rescued us from this kingdom of darkness. He's already transferred us. It's not that you're still in the kingdom of darkness and you're trying to work really hard to live a life that pleases him and pray, pray these prayers and so on in the hope that he might find you acceptable. So that maybe at the end he might transfer you. You're already transferred if you believe in Jesus Christ. Transferred from the kingdom of darkness. Where it's impossible to please him. To a kingdom of light. Through faith in the son that he loves. The father loves him. And when you love him and trust him. You find that forgiveness. We find joy at the fact that we are rescued from certain death 
and transferred. So this call from the Apostle Paul then is a call for all of us to recognize that the gospel is not just the entry gate into the Christian life. It's not the ABC. It is the A to Z. And as we go deeper in our knowledge of who God is, and as we pray, Lord, fill us with a knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might live a life that's worthy of you and live in a way that pleases you and fight the fight that pleases you. We do so knowing that the fight has already been fought. The victory has already been won. We trust it and we press on in this. Yes? And knowing this, growing in our knowledge of this, is what creates in us a deeper desire to live that life that pleases him. And then to ask him more and more, fill us with a knowledge of your will. Let's take 30 seconds to respond to him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Respond to him in a way that is fitting. Maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian. You can respond by praying to God, asking for forgiveness. You'll find that when you come to him, believing that you'll receive it. He's gracious and kind and willing to do that. Don't hold back. Maybe it's a prayer of repentance. Maybe it's a prayer that you would ask God to help you fight the fight that pleases him and live the life that pleases him. Maybe it's praying that prayer to ask him for a deeper knowledge of the gospel so that you can know how to apply it. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he qualifies us to enjoy this salvation. Not just the inheritance to come when it comes, but this redeemed life right now. Thank you for the ways in which you have been working in us to change us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. We pray that you would help us, depending on your gospel, to live lives that are worthy of you and please you in every way and that we would make it our regular prayer that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will so that we might grow in our joy in Jesus. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.